0: Twice a week, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay dissect the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports on their show, Higher Learning. They discuss the most important and timely conversations while also frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other. Check out Higher Learning on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are tuned into Black on the Air with Larry Wilmore. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to thank everybody uh, for listening. Have a really uh, interesting show today. Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, wrote a book called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, where he uh, proposes something very interesting in it. Based on the great migration. So I'm looking forward to a conversation with Charles. He's always, he's, he's a very interesting guy. I had him on the nightly show years ago and, uh, he's very, very, has some very interesting ideas. So we're going to get into that a lot about black culture and that sort of thing and what's happening right now. So I won't talk about that in my, uh, intro right now because we're going to cover a lot of that, but I do want to talk about some of those issues coming up, not just for black history month. And <laughs> you know, this is black in the air, but there's a lot of issues out there. And I believe there's a lot of, uh, I'll call it. This isn't a good phrase, but I'll call it mission confusion. <laughs> and the reason why I'm saying that, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of things the black community, and I know I'm overgeneralizing here, so I apologize for that. That I think uh, need in order to accomplish a lot of different goals, and they're uh, they're not necessarily connected. And one of the things I'll be covering. Uh, coming up in the future, not today, but I want to put this on your mind so you know I'm going to be talking about this, is I I, I think there are two things going on out there that are sometimes in conflict with each other when it comes to the Black community, and I will call them racial justice uh, versus racial grievance. Okay, so I want to put that out there to you, and I'm not going to, I know I'm teasing right now. I'm not going to go into it in detail right now because I actually have a good talk with Charles Blow coming up and, and we'll talk about some of that. But I want to put that out there. These are two kind of separate issues. You know, one justice kind of based on laws and transforming the way that institutions are structured and that and grievance, which is for me kind of based more in opinions and people's feelings and uh, things like that. But I'm, I'll go into more detail about that later. A little bit different. Um, but both very interesting, both very real, both very important. You know, they're just they're not always in cooperation with each other. Is <laughs> one of the issues. And I think there's not always clarity around that. So because I don't have a lot of time today, um, I wanted to just say, give a shout out to uh, the people who are on the ground helping everybody in Texas right now that is going through a tough time with the weather. Not uh helped anybody, <laughs> Ted Cruz, going to Cancun, which is kind of a funny story this week. But what's not funny is what's happening. So many people are, you know, just without food and, you know, they're in situations they haven't faced before. You know, a lot of the countries used to this type of weather, but there are places that aren't used to it. I'm in one of those kind of places. If we had that type of thing here in Southern California, it'd be a mess as well. But there are a lot of organizations out there that are doing some really good work. Um, give a shout out to my niece uh, Vanessa, uh, Vanessa Wilmore, who is doing some of that work herself with uh, Feed the People Dallas, which is a great organization. And they give food directly to people. Um, they, they, they. I know they collect money, but more than money, they collect resources that they can give directly to people uh, that need it. Because sometimes. Money is great, you know, you need money for things, but sometimes people just need water, you know, like right now, you know, <laughs> or, you know, food, you know, to feed the kids right now, you know, and so uh those grassroots organizations like that that are under, on the ground, and there's a lot of them, I just mentioned hers because she's my niece, you know, she's doing, a, I'm really proud of her, she's doing a good job down there, but there are, there are other organizations like that, I encourage you to look online, if you can help, that's great, you know, Um all the support is really welcome. And finally, you know, I, I said I'm keeping it short because I don't have a lot of time today, but I do want to thank everybody that was so kind. Oh, let, before I get into that, let me just mention, um, I have a series on Netflix right now called Amend. I didn't get a chance to talk about it last week because um, I was talking about something else. But uh, Amend is the story of the 14th Amendment, and it's a series, six-part series that I did with Will Smith and the documentary group. And man, it took... It took a while to put this thing together, and it wasn't easy, but we're really proud of it. And I hope you guys get to see it. It's educational. It's inspirational. It's informative, uh, eye-opening. It was eye-opening for me. It was a real, really good experience to learn uh, some of the nuances of one of our most important constitutional amendments, which is the 14th Amendment. A lot of good stuff in there. I encourage you guys, please watch them man. Um, and you can watch it with your family, you know, it's not WandaVision, but, uh, it is entertaining. WandaVision, I think is taken off my kids. love love WandaVision. I think it's kind of cool too. But, um, anyhow, I wanted to give a shout out to that. And lastly, I just wanted to thank everybody for the outpouring of support to me towards the loss of my brother, Mark, um, as I told you about. Uh, recently. And I, I just want to thank you. I haven't been able to respond to everybody, so I want to take this time to respond right now and just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. People I don't even know, you know, so many strangers, by the way, uh, fans, things like that. People weren't even fans. Some people just heard about it and reached out. That really does mean a lot, you guys. I want you to know it means so much. Every time I see something come up in my timeline or a note or a text or something, I just try to immediately... You know, it just, I, I want you to know, it immediately makes me feel good. And grief is a tough thing. You know, it's really, really tough. There's so many different stages of it, as you all know. And, you know, my family is definitely going through it now. And as a country, I think this whole pandemic and the whole COVID-19 situation has put us in various stages of grief, <laughs> you know, from anger and denial to all those different stages that we all know. And I think, you know, we're going to have to deal with that, you know, uh, some of the ramifications of that, some of the issues of that and the problems of that. So many of us are dealing with it personally, but I think collectively we're going to have to deal with this issue of grief. Um, so there you go. That's what we have to look forward to. There, Larry Wilmer delivering the good news. Oh, man. It sounds so sad, but uh, I believe in people, though. I really do. You guys, you have to know, I'm an optimist. I really am. I do believe that good things can and will happen, but I believe there's a lot of bad things along the way of that, too. I'm not uh, blind to that, but I do believe in the goodness potential of people. You know, I think it's a good way to put it. All right, that's what I got. Tune in, watch them in if you can. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy my talk with Charles Bo. coming right up.
0: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. All
1: right, welcome back, everybody. Um, very special guest today, columnist for the New York Times. This this is the man that keeps it more real than I think anybody I've ever known, <laughs> which is why we love him, though, because he's always speaking the truth. And his latest book is The Devil You Know, Black Power Manifesto. Mr. Charles M. Blow. Charles, welcome to Black on the Air. Appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I say that because, uh, Charles was nice enough to be on my other show, the nightly show back in the day. And it was good to have him, but I read you all the time. You, um, have a great column in the opinion section. And now it seems like you're, there's a bigger truth that needs to be spoken. It seems from Charles, he's got some ideas for, for his people right now. And, uh, his, you actually wrote a manifesto, it seems like. <laughs> I, know, I, I I'm having fun with it, but it really is bold, this uh, idea that you have. And I'll sum it up a little bit and then it, we'll go through it and you can explain. Sure. So you are basically proposing, mm-hmm. and I think proposing is the correct term. Yes. Or putting it out there, let's say, right. you know, kind of a reverse Great Migration type of movement Absolutely. Uh, of the Great Migration was the period of time probably about 50 years, maybe, when uh, Blacks kind of generally went from the South to the North and the West uh, for various numbers of reasons. And now Charles is proposing they go back. (laughs) Okay. So tell us exactly what this means. And I also want to know, where did this come from? Okay. Uh, So what
2: it means? uh, Well, it's, it's actually rather simple. It's mathematical. Uh, at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority Black Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. Another three were within four percentage points of being majority of Black. Every Southern state had large uh, Black populations because up until the Great Migration, 90% of the Black population lived right. in the South. And so if you had that's, it, moved, that's why it was
1: very dangerous when
2: Blacks got the right to vote. Back then. Right, right. Yes. Uh, white supremacy does not take displacement well. <laughs> you know, uh, but so if, you know, if you, if we had a move, then big if, and if you had still had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act on other big ifs, you could conceivably control up to 14 Senate seats. You could control more electoral college votes in California and New York State combined. You, if you, if black people voted over that same period, the way they vote now, you probably would have had a Republican president for the last 50 years. Last time I checked, there was not a single sitting Supreme Court justice who was appointed over 50 years ago. So the entire Supreme Court would have been different. Uh, it's real political power. It is the ability not only to sh- help to shape the national election, but also to shape state control. I mean, there's a reason that the United States is called the United States of America. There's a federal society meaning half of the power is reserved for the states. In fact, the Constitution specifically says every single uh, power not specifically designated to the federal government in this document is reserved for the states. So when we talk about criminal justice, that's mostly a state issue. Few of us are going to have a case argued before the Supreme Court, but you will have to go down to City Hall to fight that ticket, right? So a lot of that is... Local, if you talk about mass incarceration, only like 25, 30% of the incarceration incarcerated population is federal. The rest of that is city and state. You wanna uh, put a dent into mass incarceration, you take over a state, you have state power. That's how you do it. Educational policy, health policy, largely state issues. Uh, the idea of um, voter disenfranchisement, a state. States are allowed to run their Uh, elections however they choose they draw the line they draw the district lines whoever controls the state house they administer the elections themselves there there's the the federal government does not do that so i'm telling saying to black people there is power it's accessible to you it does not require a uh you know armed insurrection it does not require that sort of a revolution it's not a violent revolution this is all constitutional it is all legal it just requires you to, to say, I want to live out my life in a space where I have more control over my body and the policies that control me and my family.
1: Mm-hmm. So you're making this a geography uh, issue with Black people Absolutely. right now.
2: It, a, it, the reason that you left was a geography issue. There were too many of you in those states and they terrorized you uh, to the point where you couldn't take it anymore.
1: Now, are you, are you, how are you judging the Great Migration? Uh, this is a... Uh For those of you that are unfamiliar with it, as Charles said, blacks primarily lived in the South, you know, and uh, starting about in World War One around that time, uh, there are many more industrial opportunities for blacks to work to get out of the conditions of the South, which were horrible, mainly sharecropping opportunities (laughs) were basically all you had, you know, so it was a way for blacks to kind of open up and change their lives, you know. Uh, And the same thing after World War II, Um, cities like Chicago and Detroit, especially with the auto industry and things like that. uh, It really actually took a lot of blacks into the middle class who were in the lower class in the South. And it seems like there's some, is there a little bit of shade kind of placed on that movement or?
2: No, I just, I, and it's, it's, it's not a judgment as much as it is, uh a presentation of data. So the 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 studies around benefits of great migration are that people did marginally better uh, economically, marginally better uh in terms of education. But also their uh, mortality rates increased in addition when they moved because they were not all of a sudden unmoored from their traditional structures and so they drank themselves to death. And they all you know all sorts of things happened negatively in addition to the positive things that happened.
1: Now, when you say they were unmoored from their, from their traditional things, what do you mean by that? Uh, in the early
2: stages, it was mostly young unmarried men. Uh, there, was, there was all of a sudden no, there were the structures, the church, your family, you had grandparents, none of them could see you. No one knew what you were doing in Chicago. Uh, you could go out and stay out all night and know who was there to judge you. Your parents weren't there. Your grandparents weren't there. So it was, it allowed a, a sort of loosening of mores, social mores. And so...
1: But in time, those families were reunited and many people grew families there and developed their own uh, traditions and customs there, right?
2: In the later stages of the Great Migration, it equaled out. And I think in the last portions of it, it was more women than men. I'm just saying in the beginning... What happened was, you, it's because the federal government actually did a study because they, everybody was freaked out they saw these young people moving. And so everybody wanted to understand what's happening.
1: <laughs> you mean when they saw these black people Yeah, move. all these young black people moving. <laughs> everybody freaked
2: out. So the federal government commissioned a study to try to figure out what, what's going on here. Uh-huh. And one of the things, one of the conclusions, they came to, this is early stages, it's like the first three years of the Great Migration. Uh-huh. Uh, that something like 90% of them were young men with no family in the Right? And so that created a, a particular kind of society that evens out over time. What also evens out over time though, is that you do have the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, as Martin Luther King said, after the Watts riots, you, the, the, a lot of riots of the sixties are kind of in a way, um, responses to the success of the civil rights movement, strangely enough, meaning people, uh, black people in other parts of the country had it hard you know, they were living in slums that, when they moved, there were some benefits, but there were also incredible negatives. They, the, the, the northern and western cities started to use the exact same mechanisms of oppression that the south had used before. Uh, hyper segregation, hyper segregation in, in uh, real estate, but also in schooling. People were not able to advance. And, I mean, racism behaved the way racism behaves. It, it, it's, not, it's not geographically dependent. And so that- And that started, was the country
1: at large. It wasn't exactly. relegated to
2: one area. Exactly. Right? And they, that started to happen. And so all of a sudden there's this really big change that happens in the South. Access to public accommodations, uh, voting access. And it feels like something is moving there, but nothing is moving in the Northern and Western cities. They're still confined in the same way they were. And the Northern Western cities have this hubris that they don't have the same racial problem and they do. Right. So they're not, they're not even acknowledging it enough to change it. And so there's an explosion of violence and King writes about this after the Watts riots, Mm -hmm. identifying that, you know, and and confessing that the Fields' Rights Movement is largely a regional movement and the benefits are largely regional and that, the people who live outside that area, are not only didn't they see their uh, uh, living conditions get better, they saw them get worse in the ten years of, of that that he's talking about of the civil rights movement.
1: Well, the irony of this time, there's here's the big irony, and I think you touch on this a bit in your book too, is like everyone, rightly so, we look at the period of Jim Crow and segregation as a negative period, you know. There was, that was an unjust decision, first of all. Uh, relegated Blacks to a certain place in society unjustly, and we were treated as second-class citizens. All that is true. On the flip-positive side, and this is where I think the energy of your book is from, if I can be so bold to say, is that because we were together and forced to be together, you had different classes of people in the same areas. My father's from Chicago, you know, and he remembers those days where your Black professionals were with your, you know, Black poor people in the same neighborhoods. You know, you were taught by Black teachers in those areas. You know, there was a lot of pride in education, you know, that flowed through the community. It wasn't just one class of people. There was a class structure that was together, you know, and people kind of naturally pulled together a lot more. And ironically, when Black flight, and I think you mentioned this too, went on as well as White flight from those areas, it was the irony of desegregation, it it kind of hurt a lot of those black neighborhoods that were doing well. When you could go to, you needed a lawyer. You went to a black lawyer because you had to. But it also helped that black lawyer have a business, you know, or your or your black dentist. That's how people were able to be dentists and have a thriving industry because they had people had to go to them.
2: Right. right. And and that and that is the the great irony in the in the strain so yeah. in those yeah. communities. It is the reason that you that the. Uh, income inequality among black people in these major cities is even bigger than among white people. Right. So you uh there are people in New York City, black people doing incredibly well, but the black poverty rate in New York City is higher than the black poverty rate in Mississippi. Because the the income inequality between the black people who do well and move out and they don't they don't they're not really living in these uh Pockets of hyper uh concentrated poverty concentrated poverty is forty percent or more poverty that means not only are I poor, everybody I see is poor right unlike you being you maybe you're poor in the neighborhood, but there's also a dentist who said, black doctor, black dentist, black whomever, and because they want to make the community better, everybody's contributing to the betterment of the community right and so that doesn't exist always
1: yeah it got it got fractured. The fractured was concentrated. It wasn't fractured over a long period of time. It was concentrated because desegregation happened, you know, so quickly over 10 to 15 years, right?
2: And what you see in the South is more consolidation of power, meaning in the last 50 years, it has been a rise of majority Black cities in the South. There are now 1,200 majority Black cities in America. 90% of them are in the South. The first major city in the South with a Black mayor was Atlanta, Georgia, nineteen seventy three, because Atlanta became a majority black city in nineteen seventy. 1970. Nineteen seventy three, they elect Maynard Jackson. Today, not including Florida and and, and Texas because they're not on my reverse migration list, but
1: <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard
2: to find. Mo- most of the major cities in the South have black Maynard.
1: Wait, I have to stop for a second. You so you have a list of the places in Florida and Texas did make oh, absolutely. Um, what are those places that? And I, I want to go through this exact plan and some of the philosophy around it as well.
2: Right, so there, there are nine states, uh, all uh, with Black populations of 25% uh, or more. Uh, they stretch uh, from Louisiana up to Delaware along the I-20 then up I-95 corridor. So that's Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware. Mm-hmm.
1: And you're proposing that Black people move to these states. Absolutely. And black people from everywhere just move to these states or yes. just get up and move. Yes. Okay. That's what happened in the Great Migration. Well <laughs> Okay. Well I mean, I just wanna I just wanna know how that's gonna work. Is there like a like somebody can, just announces it, this, or well, like, I, I'm, I'm announcing it. it, and right. and also and also like I, people
2: they used to call. So there, you can trace where people are from by the train lines out of the south in the during during the Great Migration. So people, there was one train that up from at, uh, from New Orleans all the way up to Chicago, and so every city along southern city along that train, that's where you're from. If you're in Chicago, that's where you're from. Um, but you know that one of those trains is called the Chicken Bone Express.
0: Mm-hmm. People That's literally right.
2: left with what they could carry. That's that right. It. That, right. Like, so people always say, "Well, how would it work? And could you move it?" Listen, migration is not for everyone.
1: But the people that left were leaving dire conditions to go hopefully to better conditions, right?
2: Right. So some. So, so there, there's a mix of there's a mix okay. of migrants. So mm-hmm. there there are in the in the early days they were the strivers. Right, so they weren't the rich, rich people, but many of them also came from urban uh, areas in the South, young, dynamic, uh, but also feeling like my dynamism could get me killed here. Right, so that that was part of the migration. Later on, you get more people who are from countryside. These are people who've never seen sidewalks. These people, you know, whatever, and so it's a that is a. Uh, that is a uh, less educated, uh, more rural, struggling class of people. So there's number different kinds of people who migrate for different reasons at different parts of the Great Migration.
1: Mm-hmm. And for this type of migration, is it primarily poor people who are looking for a better life? Or are you suggesting the Black middle class should move too?
2: Well, I, I point out that you know um, like when Forbes does this list of where the black middle class is thriving, half that list is cities in the South. Uh, if you want to start a, a black owned business, uh, the number one region for uh, black owned businesses is the Southeast. Um, but not only is it you, do I think middle class people will do well in the South. Also, reclamation of land is big for me. You know, we now own uh, like less than one percent of arable lands in America. You know, I think I think if you put together the three or four biggest white men who own land, they own more land than all black people in the entire country. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's a problem, and a lot of people gave up land ownership to move because they mm-hmm. just said, why not? But also, I you know, I, I included a, a study from this guy at MIT who looked at. I didn't want it to just be about how well you can do if you're middle class. He looked at um, real. Um, Income increases, taking in a whole bunch of factors uh, for people, including those without a college degree over the last 30 years. Some of the strongest increase of any region was in the South. Right. So I'm not saying that South is utopia. I'm just saying nowhere is utopia. And you have a good shot in the South because there's thriving middle black middle class. You there's real ways growth for people who even who don't have a college degree. You can live in a majority black city where the cops are not hunting you. And that government is responsive to you. And you have a shot like they had here in Georgia, where you can actually flip a state. And elect representatives to the Senate who actually have your interests at heart.
1: Now, there's a lot of things happening economically in the country right now, which has affected many people, of course, the changing of our manufacturing class uh going more to an information class almost you could say you know or or a a digital class you know up type of workers so many people are moving to areas that they just desire to live in, especially because of the pandemic, and are finding that they're able to work from home and that sort of thing is this do you think we're in a, a special time right now of opportunity for people to get up and move uh, that's different than we've seen before? Because uh, this applies to to more people than just Black people, right?
2: I think the pandemic can be an impetus and probably is. So th- there were two reasons uh, that people were pushed out of the South. One was white terror, but the other one was the collapse of the cotton industry with the infestation of the boll weevil into the cotton states. Because what you have to understand is that uh, for uh what 60 50 60 years there was white terror in the south black people still didn't move uh even if you go back to the time of enslavement the majority of freed black people did not live outside the south they lived in the south there was not impetus to move just because there was terror it was, the, it was the financial collapse of the cotton industry where people said, you know, I'm being terrorized and I can't make a living, I'll, I'm open to anything. I believe that we are seeing uh, a different packaging of terror with the police killings of young black and brown men. It's nowhere near the same scale uh, as what lynching was, but because it exists on our phones, digitally, there's an echo trauma that happens because you see so much of it. But that's not enough to move on itself. But with the pandemic and how it disproportionately affected Black people, I think it collapsed enough of the Black economy that people are open, in addition to being able to just work from anywhere, but also just saying, I'm willing because this Uh, Eviction moratorium is going to run out at some point. I have not saved up six months of rent. It's getting harder and harder to stay here anyway. Uh, You know, I looked at the the second quarter of last year. That's, it's not the biggest part of the, the pandemic, but it was the part where we reacted the strongest as a country. Everything closed, right? The economy basically shut down in the second quarter of last year. So I looked at black unemployment rates in major cities across America. The black unemployment rate in Chicago was 3 times the black unemployment rate in, in Atlanta in the second quarter of last year. That kind of a collapse of an economy in a community will make everybody rethink mm-hmm. where they need to be in the world or where well, they that, can be in the world.
1: Well, let me ask you this because sometimes I, you know, I'm not always on that train of thinking why why do black people always have to go somewhere? You know, Marcus Garvey said let's all go back to Africa to be better there. You know, as you said, let's go to the North. it will be better there. Why can't we make the places that blacks are better? Well, I, well, I'm saying this, like maybe people want to live in Chicago, but they want it to be better. They want their home to be better. Their Their parents are there. Their grandparents are there. They don't want to move to the South. They want their place that they live now to be better and have those opportunities. Why can't that happen?
2: Because you're about uh, uh, 11, 12 maybe 15% of the state of Illinois, you're never gonna control it.
1: Why do you have to control it for it to be better?
2: Well I'm well I'm saying is it better for you now over the last hundred years that the, the Great Migration has that put you in that space and Chicago has done everything to do to 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 segregate you. Uh, the if you look just at the last 50 years of the police department in Chicago and all the massive abuses against black people, how's it got better for you? And do you have the power to change it? Do you have the power to change? It's not about feelings. Do you have the power to change it? I don't think you do. You can't elect a state senator on your own. The, you know, the, we have had black senators in Chicago, but they were elected by white people.
1: Why didn't it change when Harold Washington was mayor? He was a black mayor because, in Chicago. In the, because in there the are no
2: mayors in the Constitution. There are no cities in the Constitution as far as the constitution is concerned and the supreme court has validated this to some degree cities exist at the behest of states anything a city wants to do can be preempted by the state if if there's white flight from a city the state still controls the people within the borders of that state so they tax them and reallocate those funds however the state wants to not the city you don't control it so if you white why
1: don't you have more black people move to chicago
2: because you'll never be in control of Chicago.
1: <laughs> Why not? If you it's have more mad. black people.
2: You'll never be in control of Illinois. You're not, <laughs> in, uh-huh. in Illinois. You, you, the, the numbers just don't make sense.
0: Uh-huh.
2: But the numbers make complete sense in Delaware, where uh-huh. you're always, it's already the eighth blackest city in a, in a uh, uh, state in the country.
1: Black people should only, go to Delaware?
2: Yes, that's a southern state. Uh-huh. Absolutely black people should move to Delaware. They have two senators. That's real power. Absolutely. All of those places, you already have a head start. Mississippi, it only takes a a few hundred thousand black people, and Mississippi is a majority black state. It's already close to 40% black.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Let's say this starts to happen. Like, what are the jobs? Let's say, okay, come on, everybody, let's go to Mississippi. Like, and you get there, you're like, there's no jobs here. Why did I go to Mississippi? Well, maybe in 20 or 30 years, there'll be jobs because it's going to take time for this to happen. So, people are going to be willing to be the guinea pigs for this experiment?
2: Well, I, I guess, I guess do you have to infer your question because your question assumes that black people in those state, those cities and states are doing well, are which there, is not, which no, is not supported by the data, which is not, I'm if saying look,
1: are there opportunities in Mississippi? That's well, I'm, what I'm saying, saying. You're, there are no opportunities where you are now. <laughs> I'm in Southern if, California. If, concentrated,
2: if, if, when I look at the city, the top 10 places, uh, uh, metropolitan areas for concentrated poverty in America, there's only one of them in the South. And that's in Tennessee, which is not a state that I'm even saying you should, you should migrate to. Every yeah. single one of them are in states where black people migrated to during the Great Migration. When I look yeah. at the most high profile killings of black people, there are almost all of them are in states that black people migrated to during the Great Migration. If I look at New York City and the poverty rate is higher than Mississippi or Chicago or Detroit, how do people even make that argument? oh my God, it's going to be bad for me. There. As if where you are is not bad for you because people somehow believe that living in the shadow of prosperity is akin to prosperity.
1: Uh-huh. So living in the shadow of despair is better but, but you but you
2: keep, you keep framing mississippi as a place of despair or the south as a place of despair and the south is it's, the, the south is opposite the place of despair for black people and that, that, is, that is that is the misconception we have to get rid of we we still to this day think of the south as a place for despair for black people Rather than a place where, where Black people are thriving.
1: I don't say the South. I was just talking about Mississippi specifically, but not the South. The South is doing some good things. But, you know, for somebody to move from Harlem to Mississippi, I think they need some really solid reasons of a job right now and opportunities is what I'm saying that are existing in Mississippi as opposed to being part of a bold experiment. And hopefully a couple of generations down, they're going to have some political power that's going to change, you know, that Delta state.
2: Well, yeah, but I, I guess that's I would just change, I would just change yeah. your framing and then and, and say that there are nine states all the way up to Delaware, which is as close to Harlem as you're going to get for a southern state. Uh-huh. All of those are options for you. There is the entire uh, a stretch a tech stretch that stretches through uh, Virginia. Mm-hmm. If you're in in the tech industry, that's also available to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, thriving black communities. The region outside of D.C. on the Maryland side is one of the most wealthiest black communities in America. But we wanna but we but when we talk about it, we want to say, let's find a worse example. Right. And then say that's why we can't.
1: Well I well the reason why I'm asking, let me put it in a different way. Okay. Uh the people that would need this the most, let's say, maybe your unskilled worker, maybe a person who may be undereducated, you know, uh, even though there are challenges for people that have education, so I'm not suggesting that there aren't, you know, but because of the the way that our economy has shifted and changed, those opportunities are lesser for everybody in those categories, let alone Black people in those categories. So a person in that category in the North, I'm saying what is the direct opportunity for them in the South? Are those types of jobs in the South? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying
2: there's less poverty in Mississippi than there is in New York City. I understand. I I just want to finish the thought. Right. So that means... There's less job for you there. And, and, and also,
1: so the, uh, the unemployment sure rate, rate the poverty 90.
2: level is $17,000 for a single person. Maybe you can make that work in Mississippi. There is no way you can make that work in Manhattan.
1: Right. But what's the job that you're going to have in Mississippi, is what I'm asking. I don't understand. You want me to find the jobs for people? No, people, that's what they want. If people are moving... I'm giving you you unemployment numbers. I understand, but numbers only mean... Let me say, numbers, unemployment numbers and those things to me are Best Buy televisions. And here's what I mean. When you're in Best Buy, you can see all the televisions and compare. Well, that television's better than that. But when you're at home, you only see the television you have. You're in Mississippi, you only know the jobs that are there. You don't know about the jobs in New York and the same thing when you're in New York. I'm saying... If a person is has like no skills, very little education, they know yeah. manufacturing is the way to go. Are yeah. those types of jobs available for them to go to? That's what I'm. Saying. I'm going to say.
2: I'm going to say. Uh, give you the Southern region uh, as a whole. That's all I'm asking. Let me. Let me. Just, I'm going right, to say this because, and then I'm going to make a bigger point. So, so if you look at what drew people to places like Detroit, it was the okay. auto manufacturing business. Absolutely right. Correct. So every foreign automaker in the last 20 years or so has relocated their factories in the South.
1: Okay, so that's what the jobs are. Uh,
2: that, I'm just, right, I'm, I'm just going to make that point. Right. Okay, I'm going to make that point. But yeah. also, I want to make the bigger point, which is... Which is that's like, all I'm saying.
1: What are what is, the jobs? <laughs> what are they right, going to okay. go to? You're gonna, they, can't, right. they can't just go to statistics. They have to go to jobs. Yes. Yes. There are... That's so, why I'm challenging
2: okay. you, yes. Okay, yeah, well, okay. So manufacturing, those jobs exist. Okay. Uh, with a carmaker, I'd just, just use the the carmaker example because that's easy because people did migrate to Detroit because of the auto industry and the auto industry for carmakers yeah. is, is uh, re But re-organic. there are
1: civil service jobs, things like that yeah, were yes, available yes, to blacks yes, that weren't available in the South. Yeah, yes, all yes, types yes, of yes. different things. Is. Yes. Uh,
2: but But I want to make the bigger point, which is this. White people don't have to make a decision about whether they want power or not. you don't have, you don't have to have it. You, you can keep begging these white people to do what you to recognize you as a human being. That is exactly what you're doing. It may even feel powerful when you're in the street and you're marching. But basically if if, if the change you wanted, white people wanted you to have it, it'd already be done. Yeah, there, there, there is no other framing. There's been one black president who wasn't a white man. There's been one vice president who wasn't a white man. The majority of the Supreme Court is white men. The the majority of uh, the Congress is white men and the overwhelming majority of the Senate is white men. And and there are only four governors right now who are not white and none of them are black.
1: Are you are you suggesting that black progress can only be uh, gained by black politicians?
2: No, I'm saying that you have to make politicians and politics responsive to black interests. Right? There, are, there are cities right now that are majority Black but have white mayors. Those Black people elected white mayors. It is, not, it is not about blind racial solidarity. It is about making sure that the politicians who are in charge are responsive to you and your interests.
1: And the thing, the thing that you're trying to pin down, if I once again can clarify this for me, too, is how to get power. And you're using geography as a means to do it, uh, to yeah because that's what the
2: Constitution does
1: I understand, but uh but you also suggest uh like there are different ways to do this too like there's there's uh not putting all your political eggs in one basket, let's sort of let's say over the you years mean what? well, like in one party in the democratic party you know? oh, let
2: me just be very clear i when I say black power, I do not mean democratic party power i, do I understand. not understand political party power at all,
1: but if we're talking about political power, you know uh interest groups usually have an ask and, uh, a political party can either meet that ask or promise, yes. you know, that or not, or ignore yeah. it or, you know, not now, um, do you think that there is, uh, something to be had? I don't know what the answer to this is for blacks to not be, uh, in such big numbers in one party and, uh, to be, uh, have more influence in other parties. It may not even be the Republican Party. It may be an emerging party. I, I have no idea. Well,
2: what, what I will say like, on that- Like,
1: is that, is, does that, is that a diminishing of power, I guess is what I'm trying to get to, by right. having it concentrated so much in one party.
2: What, the, what sociologists say about when you, well, when a mm-hmm. party is that is, you're considered a captured constituency. Sure. I mean, the, people don't have to respond to you because they know yeah. you're going to- they uh, have your vote, vote. Uh, right. But what I'm going to say to that is, what what would, you know, uh, the, what is tantalizing to me is that if black people did do this and they voted the way they vote now, which is overwhelmingly democratic, it would create a circumstance where Republicans simply could win a national election and the party would be forced to to some sort of change or splitting or whatever. That I relish that idea. I do believe that two party or multi party uh, societies are better because you have a competition for uh votes and 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 support um and i do not even put off the idea that there's at some point if if a party compl- uh really did change like a republican party that black people would vote for them uh you know uh a, a hundred years ago the, the democratic party was literally the party of lynching
1: and the clan and i got news for you it was it was more recent than 100 yeah, exactly. years ago. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs>
2: and so, so but Black people were able to, they changed enough and Black mm-hmm. people were able to get over the fact that they that was the history of the party. Mm-hmm. You can imagine the same thing happened to the Republican Party if they changed enough.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think is the biggest issue that can help uh, change some of the status of many Blacks that are hurting in the country right now? Is it social justice? Is it education? Is it political clout? Is it just economic opportunity? If you're going to pinpoint probably the most, I I know all of those are important, but uh, since this is a manifesto, what do you, what do you, what do you think is the most important or the one that feels the most urgent right now? Uh,
2: I am, uh, you know, of the part of the mindset of Bader Jackson, like that, the political power is is at, is at the forefront because it controls all those states. have natural resources, they give out contracts, they determine how social services are allocated. All of that has an impact on both on your education, your health uh, uh, and, and how wealth is distributed within your state. It, 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 you know, it, it is hard for me to not put political power at the top of that uh, hierarchy. And also if you try to gain uh, economic power first, politics can can reshape how your economics operate. Through taxation, through tax credits, through w- w- grants that they give to certain industries and not to others, all sorts of things. The, poli- the, the that that policy making within a state is incredibly powerful,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I believe that that
1: goes first. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, Charles, because as as we know, and I know you've been uh, covering this topic for a long time, and I appreciate that, especially the issue of why you're so passionate about police and that sort of thing. And I know how how meaningful that is to you. There have been a lot of blacks involved in a lot of that reform, you know, and and some of it has not gone anywhere or or done, you know, what we would want it to do. It's not just, of course, whites doing it. Even with political power, what how can you change that relationship? Because it seems like the things that have been tried, I don't know, (laughs) it doesn't seem to make a, a difference to avoid what we've seen like this summer.
2: Uh, to, uh, at the risk of being redundant, this is how you do it.
1: But I mean, but but we have blacks in the police force. We have them uh, as police chiefs. We have them as mayors. Cities do not. I'm
2: gonna say it again. Cities do not exist in the Constitution. There's no. There's, no, I understand. You, but but
1: municipalities the, do have some self determination without police agencies around. Not how not how the law is interpreted. Not. Yes. They but, don't. They, 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 they don't. They don't. They
2: don't set the criminal code. That's at the state level.
1: Yeah, but the, the police unions level. but the police unions determine how a lot of those things are are the police uh, unions put horrific. pressure on.
2: Police right. unions put pressure on. They can uh, 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 deal with local laws about you know when a police officer has to give an a uh, uh, statement or whatever. But if anybody right. challenges that, you challenge it to the courts. And that goes to the state. And right. if, it, if they can't resolve at the state level, they go to the Supreme Court. You don't have there's no precedent there's no police in this constitution. So all of the major precedents are set at the at the court level. The reason you have Miranda rights, that is a Supreme Court decision that says you have Miranda rights. The reason that these these uh, officers can shoot and kill you if they have a reasonable fear is because of the Supreme Court precedent that said that was the the measurement. If you didn't want that to happen, you wanted a different Supreme Court, if we had had control of states, we'd have had a different Supreme Court. It is that okay. simple.
1: Okay. <laughs> if we had had control of states, we would have had a different Supreme Court. Yes. What do you mean by that? What, what, what time period are you talking about?
2: Like I said before, blacks had stayed in control of those states, voted the way they vote now. You wouldn't have had probably a Republican president for the last 40, 30, 40, 50 years. The whole court would have looked different. All of those precedents that were set in the court would have been set by other justices, yeah, not the ones you have now.
1: It's it's just hard to take that leap of what would have happened if if that would have been different. You know, that's where I I just can't go down that road of what does that like, mean? It just I I you're you're making an assumption based on this thing if this thing didn't happen, but well, we then, don't know
2: didn't take over the states. Get, you have no. The, when Georgia elected two senators this time around, where well, the majority of the coalition that elected those senators were black people, that's the first time that has happened in the history of the Senate. Right. And, right. so and that is because, because black reversed migration.
1: In right. Part, but many white people voted for those people, too. Not just yeah, black. Yeah, but the people. majority of the coalition was <laughs> right. black. That's right.
2: Not, it's, not, it's not a trivial thing. We've never done that. We've never, ever, ever been the majority of the coalition that elected a senator.
1: Is it because? And when you're not the
2: majority of the coalition, you're just the extra. You tip the balance when white people disagree.
1: I understand, but was that because more black people moved to Georgia or more black people in Georgia realized they had more power than they initially thought?
2: It it was, this this bird had two wings. On the one side, (laughs)
1: this
2: bird had two wings. Was it organizing? Stacey Abrams and all those groups were organizing black people better. But the black population of Georgia doubles between 1990 and 2020, from 1.7 million black people to 3.4 plus million black people. When the last time that Georgia went uh, Democratic for in the presidential election was 1992, black people were only 25% of the population that year. This year, black people are 33% of the population. That, that, according to exit polls, is what makes black people the majority of that coalition. That is reverse. That is the power of reverse migration. You can do this thing. It is not theoretical. The idea you can't go down the road. Of course, of course we can. Because it happened in Georgia.
1: Uh, when you said the idea that you can't go down the road. I didn't, you I didn't said mean, you can't go down this
2: road of theoretical. It's not theoretical because it happened in Georgia. Reverse migration, at it.
1: No, you were going down the road. If blacks hadn't done the great migration, I'm like, that's a huge if we hadn't done that. And then extrapolated that to Supreme Court justices, which are chosen by the president.
0: Yes.
2: But if you if you didn't mind assuming
1: that a lot of things wouldn't have happened, that Eisenhower wouldn't have been elected president after World War Two, that, you know, all the stuff in the 60s. But I I mean, who's to know what would have happened during all that time? It's too long of a period of time, you know. uh, Okay, well, don't go down that road. What I'm saying
2: then is you had you had majorities when you had those majorities during Reconstruction. Mississippi is literally the center of Black power in America. Not only Mississippi, Louisiana, Black people are overwhelmingly the majority of registered voters. They're all men at the time, women are not allowed to vote. They send overwhelming delegations of Black people to the state legislatures. In Mississippi, those delegates say to their white counterparts, you have to fill one of our vacant seats with a Black person, and they can do that because they have enough power to do that because they have a majority of the population. And two days after Mississippi is readmitted to the union, a black man is seated as a first senator in America. This is what power looks like. This is what, when you have the majority, you can exert power.
1: Mm -hmm. And And
2: they did it. And it wasn't theoretical.
1: Right. Where do you think people should uh, come from first? Is there an area of the country? Like, is there, like, are you going to be, out there like lecturing about this and coaxing people? Are you targeting certain areas where people can maybe start this? Or like
2: Yeah, I've been like the guy at the airport on the tarmac. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like- <laughs> yeah. Are you gonna have a sign like at the <laughs> store, like black people go there? <laughs> like, how does this what is what is the practical implementation? Is there one or are you trying to just get the conversation started? Get the conversation
2: started, but also uh in the same way that different people uh, during the Great Migration, migrated for different reasons and to different regions. Uh, there are people in the north and west right now who have family ties in particular places and may want to re uh, uh, con- uh, connect those ties. There are other people who are in particular industries that may have uh, better opportunities in particular areas. There's some people who just want to live uh, near water and near a beach or something, and they'll have. So there are different sensibilities, also there are people in the Northeast who don't wanna move all the way down to the hot South. And so Maryland and and Virginia and Delaware make more sense to them uh, uh, than a deep South state. But so there's differences for different kinds of people. I think you have to make that evaluation on your own, uh, But I, but the idea of considering the South among the places that you could be is important for me to get that conversation started because not everybody migrates ever. Ever, ever. You know, the majority of Black people did not leave the South during the Great Migration.
1: So what happens to the people that are left in these cities? Do we just abandon these cities that, as you say, have failed Black people? So we just give up and say, sorry, Black people that are staying there. If It's South or nothing.
2: No, I, I think if you feel comfortable, safe, uh, valued and edified where you are, if you have established a uh, way of life and bought property and raised children and that's where you feel safest and most yourself stay there by all no, means
1: no no but maybe they're not maybe they are in these areas where they can't move you know they don't have any money they can't just get up and and just move you know <laughs> people may
2: not have money saved well I, that, that's not exactly true because many of the people during the migration had nothing they literally arrived in places like Philadelphia and Chicago with whatever they could carry no furniture nothing so the idea that
1: you can't right. just
2: move that's not true and and but but, and the,
1: but as you said the reason they a uh, big reason they did that was terror also cuz sometimes something's pushing you out rather yeah, than Yeah but also they
2: lived in the south for 60 years under the terror and had moved they moved for an economic reason but they didn't have any money so i'm just making
1: that point cuz you also had the pull as you say in your right, book they, they, moved they for they the moved to the make economics. money but they didn't
2: have any money to move right so that that idea of like oh they people can't do it because they don't have money to move well that's not that's not how that worked that's not how the dust bowl worked that's not how the gold rush worked people jumped up and moved without anything mm-hmm. over and over again that's how migrations work voluntary migrations in this country work the the greatest example of this ever working on a, a, of taking over a state was young white hippies from the northeast moving to vermont and they slept in the fields they developed communes just to get along and not be freeze to death but but that's that's just the truth of it. I was going to think that's, so that's the know. truth of it. We mass do not migra- want to model
1: ourselves after white hippies. No, I, but I'm just saying. <laughs> my,
2: but the but the history of right. of mass migrations. Uh-huh. Voluntary migrations in the, in this country right. is not of people because they got up and they had saved the money and they had enough to rent the car and a moving van and all that. That's not the history of it. The history of it is very different. The history of it is a bunch of people have no idea where they're going, have, don't have much that they're taking with them, and they move anyway because they believe there's an opportunity there.
1: I mean, the reality of it is, you know, you had more, uh, you had larger families, and as you say. One person would go out, so many times you could pool the money for that one person to go, and then later they would bring the others with them. That was the reality of back then, you know. Uh, you know, one person would go out first, as you just said, you know, uh all those single men <laughs> in Chicago or whatever, you know, and doing that sort of thing. This is such a bold thing, which is why I'm asking all these things. Oh, you know? no, it's, fine. it's And And I appreciate the fact that, you know, even— your inciting incident, as we say in the writing world, was listening to Harry Belafonte when he asked, are there any radical ideas? That was a, mm-hmm. something that you heard him say. Is is that why you feel you, you wanted to—was that what moved you in the first place to come out with something that feels a little more bold than maybe what other people might suggest?
2: No, I, I think it's more—some of it's just exhaustion and seeing people doing the same thing, getting the same result all this uh, uh, marching and, and, and protesting and I'm realizing like it's I, I literally can't uh, uh, lay prostrate in front of the white power structure anymore. It doesn't feel good. it doesn't feel strong. Uh, 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 it doesn't feel like power to me and and having recently this idea what happened in Vermont come into my conscience and I was like oh wait, they, they did that and uh, and it worked. And they changed Vermont from one of the most conservative states to now is one of the most liberal states in America. They did that. So just knowing that it was there was there was something possible. And then the, the more I researched it and realized, like, how many people had the same kind of idea before, but it was just at the wrong times. Uh, or maybe they were stretching a little bit too far, calling for a black nationalism of carving out part of the United States as another country. That's not going to happen. So I was like. But there's a way to articulate this message, and right now, is kind of perfect because millennials are already doing this. They're, it's already happening, so they just need a you know a, a kind of gust of wind in the sails mm-hmm. that that helps to boost it.
1: Okay, so let me ask you this: so let's say there are millennials right now, a big group of people, and they read your book or they listen to this, and they say, you know, Charles is right. You know, this is this is the way to go. We've tried so many different things. Do you have a recommendation? Like, is there a, a state that's right for this right now? Like, it, like if enough people focus on one state, let's say, what is there a place right now that you think could be the tipping point that people can see this example, as you said, in Vermont? It made you say, whoa, this thing can happen. Oh, there's several, actually. I mean, I, I think
2: I think uh, both Maryland and, you know, Delaware is always right for the pick because it's mm-hmm. just so small. It doesn't mm-hmm. take that many people. And Maryland, there's already there's a lot of black people in that area. Well, right? there's where every every state I've mentioned is 25 or plus percent. Right. Right. right so right. you already have a giant head start just because of what these states are already constructed. Maryland yeah. is is prime. There are a lot of people in D.C. that, you know, and, and you know, if you could reload like Kate to Maryland, you know, th- that it's not a huge culture shock. For a person in D.C. to go to Maryland. I, I love D.C., but D.C. doesn't have two senators, mm-hmm. so that's a problem. So, and that's why you're saying Maryland, right? Yeah. But so, th- so there, there, are different states that I yeah. that are important to me for different reasons. Mississippi, just because it was literally the Black Power Center, and it be, it was the first state to call a constitutional convention to write those Black people out of power and to write white supremacy into their constitution. And literally every Southern state followed what they called the Mississippi example. Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Morally, that victory cannot be allowed to stand. Morally, as a black person in America, that cannot happen. That that has
1: to be reversed. Do you know what the black population is percentage wise in Mississippi? It's nearing forty percent. Really? Yes. Yeah. Um, so Mississippi could be a target.
2: Mississippi, I, I you know the math of Mississippi is only a few hundred thousand people, and when you look at the number of voters, it's even smaller. Mm-hmm. That's
1: the people that are participating for, yeah, in the electoral yeah, process, right, right,
2: over over eighteen years old, yeah, right.
1: And what about housing? Does housing become an issue if you have a a large number of people? Is you know, people have said we're in a housing shortage right now for you know, especially people with lower incomes. Is is that a major roadblock, or you don't see that as an obstacle?
2: Not exactly, because if you see a, a state uh, like uh Georgia is a great example because they've had such a, uh, uh influx during reverse migration. And in fact, the, the counties around Atlanta are the number one destination of reverse migration in the country. And so that's, that's added hundreds of thousand people. And you see what it does. There's a traffic strain and all the things that comes with being a slightly bigger metropolitan area. But people, there's area to develop. So people are able to develop further out and they do it. Um, that's the that's one of the things about southern cities. They're generally smaller, in, are surrounded by rural areas, right? So the the city of Atlanta itself is only uh, four hundred and forty thousand people. At uh, New Orleans, I think now is in the three hundreds in terms of the total population of the city itself. They have small footprints. It's the areas around them where the millions of people are, and they're able to grow because that that region around them is largely rural. That is not always the case in manhattan is manhattan like you grow, you're gonna have to go to jersey because it's an island uh and, and the suburban area around is already built so it's very difficult to add new housing other than vertical and that becomes a more expensive housing um and that that dynamic exists in a lot of it was san francisco another island so it's like how are you going to deal with this but the southern cities have the 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 verticals i mean the horizontal space to grow into what is now kind of rural
1: space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let me ask you this question. This is more about kind of, let's call it the Black Movement, Charles. I want to get your opinion on this. Um, do you think, uh, let's say, whether it's a movement like yours that you're talking about or something else, do Black people as a political movement, not just Black people, but you know what I mean, in terms of doing something as a political group, are we in need of like a charismatic leader or or somebody who can translate not just the mechanics of these things, but also the the spirit of this of these types of things.
2: It is possible. Uh, you know although, what I mean, right? Yeah, I get I get what you're yeah. saying, but but the 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 movements that we've had, particularly uh, liberal movements, over the last you know 15 years, have not had. There have been leaderless movements. They've been kind of. Uh, uh, social media movements. And that's everything from Occupy Wall Street to the Women's March to Black uh, Black Lives Matter. It's hard to find who's in charge because they intentionally do not uh, organize themselves with that kind of hierarchy. And so there are people who can speak, and there are women who were among the original women who organized who can speak, Or Toronto Burke can speak uh, uh, on the Me Too movement, but they kind of almost intentionally are not person-specific. Now, that has downsides, which is you don't have what you said, the charismatic leader. The other thing is the upside, which is there's no one person to kill.
1: Yes, that would be the more cynical (laughs) take. Yes. (laughs) And by that, I mean, it doesn't have to be one person, but it could be you know because there's that's what i mean there's message and then there's messages being received or how things you know we used to have the the black church as a major unifying force where those messages uh, we didn't need politicians in the same way like almost the pastors were almost the the local politicians in some ways you know which is how our the demographic keeps changing you know it's really kind of interesting um do you think the the church can play a part in this at all
2: I'm not a very religious person, but I do believe in our institutions. The church is one of our black institutions. Right. The the church was able to organize to deliver message to even act as a social service when they wouldn't let it black people couldn't do that in any other way so i i value them as institutions and they're incredible organizing structures many of them are full of older black women there is nobody in america that can organize over organize <laughs> black women at a church like get that fan
1: out that church fan everybody <laughs> that
2: she tells you something they're going to do it so right so as an organizing tool it's an amazing structure
1: uh well charles I really appreciate you being, you being here and talking about this. Like I said, it's very bold, you know. Uh, sorry, black people, you got to move, you know. <laughs> we got to get you in some concentrated areas to get some political powers, what Charles would say. Uh, now, Charles, you're from Louisiana. I am from Louisiana, yes. Are you going back to Louisiana? Or you- I moved
2: to Atlanta last January.
1: Okay, so you're in Atlanta now doing the do and trying to bring people down there. All right, guys, the devil you know, it's a Black Power Manifesto. It's really good reading. It's because you know what it is? Here's what I love about Charles. Let me say this. I love provocation. You know, someone that is uh, forcing you to look at something in a completely different way. I never would have seen this coming. You know, even when I saw the title, I wasn't sure what your plan was. You know, reading it, I was so happy to see something so bold. I don't agree with a lot of it, you know, as as you can tell. I just, I just don't, <laughs> but <laughs> no, because I'm I'm really more interested in, in making places better where they are more so than moving, you know, like I want Ferguson to be a better city for the black people that live there, you know, I want all these places, you know, to be better, but I don't, I don't, even though I disagree with it, I'm not saying that it's not a good idea, it's, an, it's a very provocative idea, you know. I find it fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't mind, I don't mind disagreeing with people, though. That's the other thing that you should know about me. I don't, I don't discount what, they, what they've done. I think it's, a, it's awesome. So there you go. That's right. my take, Charles. Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Blow, you guys. The W. Get the book on Amazon and any place you get books. Right, Charles? Yes, that's right. It's a Black Power Manifesto. Thanks again. All right. Thank you.